is that you're going. I don't know where you're at. I ain't dumb. Uh, there's still a chance, but I got my notes now. So we're ready. I know where you're at. I get you. I get you. You don't say it to my face, you know, but I hear you talk. I hear you. So anyway, well, let's pray together and then we're going to open God's word and see what he has to say to us this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you that your word to us this morning is certainly not dependent upon my preaching notes. Lord, you are far beyond that. Lord, you can speak to us just even as we walk in the doors, as we hear from one another, as we encourage each other, as we say hello, as we sing, as we give. And Lord, we certainly know that you'll speak to us through the revealed Word of God. So Lord, we thank you for it. Lord, we know that without it, we, we would have a very diminished view of who you are. But Lord, with it, we understand who you are and who we are and who you want us to be. And so Lord, we pray that as we open your Word, as we examine it, that you would examine us with it, that you would lay open anything in us that does not belong, that is not of you. Lord, you would show us the path of repentance and restoration with you. Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school, and I reference this from time to time, uh, I played for a, for a coach who was sort of like Santa Claus. He knew everything. You know, and and uh, you know, if you if you've raised little kids, you you know you threaten them with you know, hey, uh, you know, somebody's going to find out, and Christmas ain't going to be real good. You know, and. And, and Coach Miller was like that. It seemed as if he knew everything. And the way that he knew everything is because he had about 10 assistant coaches that were constantly watching us all the time. And I, no joke, we had 10 assistants, and they were there everywhere. We had one guy who his first year coaching was my senior year of high school, and we were pretty good, and we had a good senior class, and, and, and we did what was right for the most part. And, and yet he came in as a brand-new assistant, and he was going to catch us doing something. You ever, you ever been around somebody like that? Maybe you worked for somebody like that. And they're brand-new in their position. They're finally there, the supervisor. And you're not quite sure if they've earned their spot or not, but they've got the title, and they're going to prove to everybody that they are the supervisor. And this guy came in, and, and he was constantly trying to catch us doing something. And some of you maybe remember the old commercials, the, uh, the Crime Dog McGruff commercials. You remember those? We called this guy the Crime Dog. And, man, we made his life absolutely miserable. Every time he'd come around, we'd just start barking. And we were all of us, and we called him a crime dog, and boy, he hated it, and he hated us for a while, and we finally convinced him that he didn't need to be looking at us so much all the time, you know. And, but, you know, they, they seem to know everything about us. Maybe you've got a boss like that, or you've worked for somebody, and you can't get away with anything. You're, you're, you know, they, they see the good you do, but boy, they also see right through sometimes the good you do to the shortcuts you're trying to take, or whatever it may be, and, and maybe you've been around people like that, and you know, I, I came to appreciate it over time, I'll be honest with you. Because even though I could never get away with anything, those guys, those coaches were there to help me get better. They wanted me to be the best player that I could be. They wanted our team to be the best team that we could be. And so they were going to call us out on things that we needed to improve upon. And sometimes it was tough to take. And sometimes you say, well, good grief, I'm doing all that I can. Can't you find something else, somebody else to pick on? And, and yet they knew that if they didn't call me out, call us out on the things that we could improve upon, that we never would improve. And you know that to be true in your own life as well. If you don't have somebody in your life who says, hey, look, you've got some great things going on, but 
there are some things here that I see that you can improve upon, then you'll never get better at whatever it is that you're doing. And that's just the way it is. And young people, you look at your parents probably the same way, and you say, well, good grief, they're just picking on me all the time. Really and truly, most of them just really care about you and want you to, to, to experience life the way that God has intended for you. In the same way that all that plays out, we're going to look at a scripture this morning, primarily focusing on it, where Jesus sees everything about a particular church. And, and as sobering and maybe intimidating as it can be, Jesus sees everything even today about our church and about you as an individual and about me as an individual. All the good, all the bad, all the ugly. He sees all of it, just as he always has. And he does some things and he calls us out on those things in his scripture and he gives us some strong words sometimes for when we go astray, but he does it so that we will be the people that he wants us to be. And when Jesus calls us out on something, it's not for the purpose of condemning us, it's for the purpose of restoring us and helping us to be who God has called us to be. So that's what we're going to kind of focus on this morning. This idea that Jesus sees everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he calls us out on some things sometimes that maybe we wish he would just let us go on, but it's for our benefit. The series that we're in is called Undefeated. It's about Jesus and his church. Uh, There's scripture in Matthew 16, we'll read it in just a minute, where we get the idea that because Jesus is our rock, because of the faith and the faithfulness and the witness of so many people throughout history that have been solid Christian believers, because of all those things, the foundation of the church is such that not even death, not even hell itself can defeat the church because of Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been looking at. How then do we operate as a church and as individuals in this thing called Christianity, in this thing called church? How do we operate if we are going to operate as if we are truly undefeated? And so that's been our theme. Our goal has been to see what is it that church is to be about according to Jesus, and then let's live and let's work and let's do According to that, sometimes we get it right, don't we? Sometimes we get it wrong. And this morning we'll see where Jesus is going to commend a church for some things they did right and then call them out for some things that they did wrong. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 16 to kind of give us an overview of where we've been and see it. Uh, kind of where we can springboard from here. And and then from there, just so you know, if you want to go to Matthew 16, that's the first book in the New Testament. We're going to focus our time really this morning on the last book of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation in chapter 2. So look with me first in Matthew 16. We'll get an overview of where we've been in the series, and then we'll go to Revelation chapter 2. Matthew chapter 16, look beginning in verse 13. And Jesus is having an interaction, a conversation with his disciples, and here's how it goes. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he's in, in general, he's asking, who, who, you know, what's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? And here's what they said. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So there's lots of confusion. You kind of get that. They don't exactly know people out there in general. Who is Jesus? Is he one of the prophets? Is he, uh, is he Elijah raised from the, you know, come back to life? I mean, what, what is he? Uh, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, he's speaking here on behalf of the group. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah. 
You are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. Of course, that's where we get the undefeated uh, title for the sermon, uh, for the series. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Now, what we looked at last week was the idea of the cost of discipleship. You look down at verse 24, Jesus says this, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So he's got a clear plan for here's how it is that we are to follow Jesus. So he gives them this incredible pep talk and so on. You're right, I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You've got this right and so on. And then we left out the little part, beginning in verse 21, where Peter kind of has an interaction just with, with he and Jesus. And here's, here's, what it, here's the way that goes. Look at verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples, now stop there, if you were one of the disciples, what would you be wanting Jesus to point out to you at this point? He has told them, the gates of hell cannot stand against you. Whatever you bind on earth is bound. You've got this incredible responsibility to lead the church and see incredible things happen. Hey, from this point on, it's all going to be great. And we're going to take over the world. Now, I don't know what you would want to hear this morning, but if, if I'm that person, if I'm a believer in Jesus, I want to hear that everything's going to be okay. It's going to be not just okay, it's going to be great. In fact, people are going to love you because you're following Jesus and the whole world is going to flock to you and say, would you please tell me about this Savior that you claim as Jesus? Would you please tell me about Him? It's going to be incredible. And that's what I would hope to hear. So he would say, uh, point out to his disciples that everything is going to be awesome. But everything was not going to be awesome. From then on, Jesus began to point out, look what it says to his disciples, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. That's a complete shock, just so you know. Absolute shock to the disciples. He has just told them that this thing called the church is going to be and is undefeated and nothing can take it out. And then he tells them that he, their leader, the one who's establishing the church, the rock on which they're all building, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, he's going to die at the hands of the religious leaders and then he'll be raised again. I mean, think about their reaction. And so when we see Peter's response here in just a minute, it's not altogether surprising that he would do what he did. Peter took him aside, it says in verse 22, and began to rebuke him. Now the word rebuke there carries the connotation of someone telling someone else, you are dead wrong. You have no clue what you're talking about and you have really missed it. And I need to correct you, and I need to make sure that you understand what's happening here. You hear my dad voice there? It's the dad talking to the, to the kid. It's the, the mentor talking to his protege. It is, it is the teacher talking to the student. It is someone saying, you sit down, you listen, let me put you straight. That's the tone that Peter takes with Jesus. The Messiah, the Son of the living God, he's going to tell him, Oh no, Lord. This will never happen to you. 
and Jesus, of course, responds as, oh, thank you so much. I was, I was hoping somebody would get me out of this. Man, Peter, I tell you what, you got this whole thing right. I mean, the son of the living God, you got that right? This whole thing, if this really isn't going to happen to me, man, you're awesome. I, if only everybody, Peter, were just like you. If everybody got it the way that you got it, and it's just this is never going to have Jesus. We'll, we'll take Jerusalem for you. They, they cannot do this to you. And Jesus says, "Man, you're awesome." What's he call him instead? Satan. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I just think it's funny. Get behind me, Satan. A minute ago, he's telling him, "Hey, man, you're awesome because you, you know God has revealed this to you about me being the Son of the Living God and so on." And then he says, "Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me." You're in my way. You're keeping me from the mission that God has given me. Get out of the way, he says. You're an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but what? But man's, but human concerns. Very quickly, the church, if you will, gets it wrong. This church, these people that were going to be so undefeated, this incredible journey that God was going to send them on as Jesus establishes the church, and very quickly they get it wrong. They don't understand the mission of Jesus. And Peter, probably again, speaking on behalf of the group, they put him up to it. Hey, Peter, we know you don't mind sticking your foot in your mouth, so would you please go ahead and tell Jesus this ain't ever going to happen to him. Oh, yeah, I got you. It's not going to happen anyway. Peter's the one that they you know, he kind of put up to all this, and then he on behalf of the group, is told, get behind me. You're an offense. You're a stumbling block. You're in my way. They got it wrong. They didn't understand what Jesus really, really wanted. And he made the mistake that countless others have made, that churches have made, that we have made, that individuals have made throughout the centuries, that he had in mind the things of humans and human concerns and what we want and not what God wants. They didn't want their Messiah to die. Can you blame them? They didn't want their mentor to be killed and tortured. Can can you blame them? And so he says to Jesus, look, this isn't going to happen. And Jesus says, you don't understand. This is the mission. This is what God has called me and sent me to do. And he's thinking, Peter is, thinking about himself instead of the mission of Jesus. Now, it would be great if this, in Matthew 16, were the end of that sort of mentality. That Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, and Peter repents, and nobody ever deals with it again. That no other church ever gets in mind its own concerns. That no other Christian ever puts himself or herself first above the mission of Jesus. It would be great if it ended right there. But you know and I know that it didn't. And it continued, and it continued some more, and it snowballed some more. And it wasn't the case then that it ended, and it's certainly not the case now. And in fact, even just a few decades later, as we'll look in Revelation chapter 2, even just a few decades later, it got to the point, at just, at a, few days, a few decades after Jesus ascended into heaven, that correction was needed for many of the believers because they had in mind the things that concerned them and not the things that concerned the Lord. And so Revelation chapter 2 in particular, and chapter 3, if you want to flip over there to your right a little bit, contains letters to seven different churches that Jesus was giving through the Apostle John in a revelation, a revealing of something, and Jesus in each of those addresses the churches and tells them some things and 
And in most cases, most of those churches, he has something good to say, and he also has something that they needed to correct. We're going to look at the first of those churches today, the church at Ephesus. And when you when you see the book of Revelation, many of you start freaking out already. Man, he's preaching on Revelation this morning. We're talking about the end of the world and some four-headed monsters and some stars and scrolls and stuff that I don't understand. And what? how should we read the book of Revelation? Let me just give you an overall message. Here's the message of the book of Revelation. You ready for it? Real simple. It's not in your outline. Free stuff this morning. The overall message of the book of Revelation is Jesus wins, so press on. That's the message of Revelation. That's it right there. What about the four-headed monster? Jesus wins, so press on. He, he beats the four-headed monster. Is that thing real? Well, I guess we'll all find out, won't we? The book of Revelation is what's known as apocalyptic literature, which means there's lots of symbolism and lots of things that, that, that probably aren't exactly literal, if you understand. There probably won't be a four-headed monster come up out of the sea in some movie scene. It probably represents some, something else. And that's what John was trying to help them know. But the Christians during the time that John received this revelation, during the time that he wrote it, during the time that they read it, they were under severe persecution. And what did they need to know? That Jesus wins. So press on. What do we need to know today from the book of Revelation? Jesus wins, so press on. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have to read Revelation. That doesn't mean you shouldn't study it. But that is the overall message. So if, if don't get caught up in all the little stuff trying to figure out every little bitty thing and miss the message. Don't miss the message of it. But he starts with not all of the four-headed monsters and the seven scrolls and all this kind of stuff. Jesus starts with some letters to the churches that represent that region and so on, some very important cities and very important churches during the time. And the first one he addresses was the most important city of their day, the, the city of Ephesus. It wasn't the capital of, of that particular area of the world, but it was the most important city. Major roads going through there. It was a port city, lots of trade. In fact, the Roman governor lived there. I mean, it just lots of stuff. And it also had, it was the center of, of Roman worship. The temple of, of Artemis or Diana was there. And they, they worshipped her through all kinds of different uh, rituals, cult prostitution and different things and so on. Just really evil society that this church is nestled in. And so it is to this particular church that Jesus sends a message. Look in, Rome, or in Revelation rather, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now, what's he talking about? Is he sending a literal angel there? Uh, from what I can gather in my study this week, the angel, of course, is, is another term for messenger. And so most likely Jesus is sending this message through a messenger, this maybe pastor, leader of the church, going to take this to the church. And so here's what he has to say to the church in Ephesus. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands says, now stop there for just a second. When he's talking about these different lampstands and so on, Jesus is placing himself and wanting them to know that he's placed himself in their midst. The seven lampstands representing the seven different churches, the light on the hill and so on. And he is saying, I am right there with you. I know every single thing about you. I know your works, verse 2, he says. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. Here's what Jesus is saying. There's some great stuff in your church. Some incredible things going on. I could go on and on and on and on and on about all the wonderful things that Elm Grove Baptist Church has going for, and all the wonderful people. People will ask me sometimes, hey, how's your church going? You know what they want to know? How many people you got there? Especially if it's pastor. The, the pastors want to say, how many are you running? 
That means how many people you got on an average Sunday morning. And I, you know, if I, you know, I want to get in the flesh more than you. More than you. Or if it's a bigger church, we fill up our building more than you fill up your building. You know what I, what I really answer, though? I just tell them about, hey, you know what? Let me tell you about these people. Let me tell you about this person. Let me tell you about all the wonderful people that God has placed inside our church. Because whether we got 10,000 or whether we got 100, it makes no difference. We need to be who God has called us to be. And God has called us to be the church of Jesus Christ. And so, I could go on and on and on about all kinds of wonderful things. And Jesus here points out some great things about the church at Ephesus. And these are some things that as we look at these, you'll see on your outline, these are things we can't get wrong. I mean, if we want to be the kind of church that God has called us to be, we can't get these things wrong that He commends this church for. The first, He talks about their labor. Verse 2. He talks about their labor. Look at it. I know your works, your labor. Now that word labor there means all out, wearing yourself out on behalf of the Lord. These are the kind of people that, he, that Jesus is addressing. They worked hard. I mean, you know, we just got done with VBS not long ago. And some of you were flat tired and still are. You won't recover till next year. It's just the way it is. Man, I'm getting too old for this, you know. It's just the way. You worked hard, didn't you? I mean, you went, some of you have full-time jobs. And you went to a full-time job. You got off at 5 o'clock. You came here in order to serve and to work in whatever capacity. And you left here at 8 o'clock. And you got home and you crashed. And you got up the next day and you did it all over again for, for four days in a row, Monday through Thursday. But you also did Sunday night as well. And you worked and worked and worked. And some of you this morning, you got up and and you scrambled to to put together a Sunday school lesson that just kind of got put on hold this week. You know what I'm talking about? And you came and you worked this morning. And you served and you did everything you could. We have some folks who serve on different committees and so on. There's deacons or trustees or church council or, or any kind of other capacity. And you really, really, really work hard on behalf of the Lord. And the Ephesians were those kinds of people. He says, I know your labor. And he's not saying it in a bad way. He's saying, I know what you're doing. I know how hard you work. I know it's an all-out effort that demands everything from you, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. It's demanding a lot from you, and I know that you're working hard. And he commends them for that. As I would commend our folks here, from our staff to our volunteers to people who work inside and outside the church and your family, at your job, on your team, you're doing all that you can to the point of exhaustion to serve the Lord. And they were commended for it. He not only talks about their labor, but also in verses 2 and 3 talks about their endurance. He says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. And then verse 3, you also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. They're in very difficult circumstances. I described Ephesus for you just a few minutes ago, how evil and awful it was. And a a group of Christians in that society would not have been popular. They would be on the cusp of persecution, if not experiencing it already. And yet they had endured all of those things. They had never given up. They had not, as it says in verse 3, grown weary. They didn't quit serving the Lord. And Jesus says, way to go. It's exactly what you should do. Society is not going to be your friend. This world is not going to love you. But I do, so don't give up. The book of Revelation, what did I tell you? Jesus wins, so what? Press on. Endure. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't quit. Now for us, I know here some of your stories. 
many stories in some cases. And you've endured some very difficult circumstances. Some things you didn't ask for. Some stuff you never could have anticipated. And yet, in so many cases, you've not given up. You've not turned your back on the Lord. You've simply pressed on. And yes, your faith has maybe gone up and down a little bit and you've struggled with it as everybody would. But you've not given up and you have continued to endure and you've not compromised and you just said, we will serve the Lord no matter what happens. And you're to be commended. It's not a pride thing, look at me and my great faith. It is just simply Jesus commends these people for enduring and we should be, those of you that have, that have endured as well, should be commended. Way to go. That's exactly what God wants you to do, to press on. The church there had been through some difficult times. And our church, for those who have been around for quite a while, you know some of the difficult times our church has been through. I've heard the stories, experienced a little bit of it. The church pressed on, the church endured. So Jesus commends their labor, their endurance, and then thirdly, he commends their doctrine. Doctrine is another kind of term for what they believed and what they stood for and what they taught. He commends their doctrine. Look at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. And then look at verse 6. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't get a lot of... uh, Information about who these people were, but apparently there were some false teachers and, and so on. What he's telling them is, you have been vigilant to teach the truth. You have stood for the gospel. You have made sure that you did not water it down by just telling people what they want to hear. You have stood for the truth. You have lived in the right way, and you have protected the purity of the church by keeping sin as far from it as you possibly can. They wanted to be sure these Ephesians did. That they were teaching what Jesus taught. That they were living how Jesus lived. And it seemed as if they had done that. And Jesus says, way to go. You should be concerned about your doctrine. You should be concerned about what you're teaching and how you're living. And whether sin is permeating the church or not. And they're protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians. He said, Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, and he was raised again. And that is the crux of all of Scripture's teaching. It's not just good moral stories from the Old Testament. It's not just little phrases from Jesus that teach us how to be better people. It is the fact that we are born dead sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus and Jesus alone could rescue us. And He and He alone did what only He could do, and that is to die the death that we deserve. And He was raised again to give us the promise of eternal life. And the Bible says that all who will believe in Him will receive eternal life. Whosoever will believe, as John 3.16 says. They were protecting that message. They were making sure it didn't get watered down. And they were living as pure as they could. And they were keeping sin out, as you see there. You cannot tolerate evil. And they were testing those who said, I want to be a teacher. They were testing those to make sure that they understood the gospel. And they were being discerning, does this person get it? And so Jesus points out some great things. And folks, we can't get those things wrong. We must do those things. We have got to labor for the Lord. And it's not easy. It is not easy. And you know it. If you've been serving in the church for any length of time, you know it is not easy. It is a labor, truly, sometimes to the point of exhaustion. Yet Jesus says, that's what I commend you for. Keep going. Press on. We have got to endure. Times are not exactly the way that we would want them to be, nor will they probably ever be. Listen, the good old days ain't coming back and they weren't that good to begin with. Know what I mean? They really weren't. 
Well, here we are in 2017, living in a culture that doesn't quite agree with us. What will we do? What will we do? Jesus says to endure. And we also have to make sure that we don't get our doctrine wrong. We have got to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ, that He and He alone is the way for salvation, and that only through faith in Him can we be forgiven of sin, and that we must be forgiven of sin in order to enter heaven. And it's not just by being good, but it is only through the exclusive death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've got to protect those things. And so at this point in the letter, it would seem as if Jesus is just saying, hey, you guys are incredible. There is nothing negative to say about your church. I mean, they're doing well. You know, they they probably thought they were doing well. Everything's going great. Hey, you know, everything's fine. And they probably, from the outside looking in, had a reputation that that's a great church. I mean, look at all that they do, especially from the other people that would have been reading this letter. This was going to be passed around, by the way. This was going to be mail that other people would open and read because they would get the entire book of Revelation. And those who knew the church at Ephesus, the other churches that we'll look at in a few weeks, they would have said, yeah, that's Ephesus. We know them. Well, they do work hard and they do endure and they do have correct doctrine and so on. I mean, there's nothing really that could be said bad about them, but... Remember how my coach knew everything? Jesus knows everything. And he says in verse 4, look at it, But I have this against you. And boy, what words they didn't want to hear. They would have just as soon Jesus said, Good job on your work and your endurance and your doctrine, and you guys just keep right on trucking. Just keep going, but I have this against you, he says. And what he has against them is huge. This morning, I told my buddy who texted me, he's on his way to Haiti for a mission trip. He said, hey, man, I'm praying for you this morning. He said, to bring the heat. I said, I said, all right. I said, I'm preaching a message this morning that is just for me just for me. And I don't say that for effect. I hope you all know that by now. I really don't. Because what Jesus says to these people and what he passes on through that pastor who got that message first and had to read that letter to say, what is Jesus saying to our church? Guess what? He's part of that church. And he was one who needed to hear it. And this morning I'm preaching a message and quite honestly, if you're not listening, I just pray that I'm listening because this is one that's just for me. Because what Jesus had against those people, he can have against us. And I have seen myself as a pastor slip into these things. And maybe you have if you've been a longtime Christian as well. I gave my life to Jesus when I was eight years old. It's been a while now. It's over 30 years now. And there are times, and I've been in ministry now for 14 years, and there are times when what Jesus has to say to the church at Ephesus is directly applicable to my life, and maybe you would receive it as well. Here's what he says. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You have, as other translations say, you have lost your first love. What's he talking about? What love is he talking about? Love for what? Love for whom? Well, I really believe that it probably goes back to when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 27, in answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? He said what? You might know it. Love what? The Lord your God. With what? With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then he said, and the second is like it. What did he say? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? 
When Jesus references you've lost your first love, you've lost the most important kind of love. You've lost the love that you used to have, which would have been for this church, what? Love for God with all they are. And love for others as themselves. Jesus is calling them out because you're doing all these things, but guess what? You don't have an ounce of love in your heart for anybody that you're doing it for. And man, what a trap. What an absolute trap. He commended them for some things that we say, we can't get this wrong. And then he says, but you've abandoned your first love. What is most important, love of God with all that you are, love of your neighbor as yourself. You've gotten all these other things right, and yet you've missed the point entirely, he says. Oh, man, what a convicting statement for this church. What a statement that Jesus says, I I know your deeds and you're doing great things, but you don't love God anymore. And you don't love other people anymore. And you've lost your love to make disciples in the world. The results of losing that kind of love can be seen in any church. Sometimes, isn't it true that you show up and you just sing the songs? You don't worship anymore? You say, well, you know, I tell you, if the song was this, if it said these words, if it was played in this style, if this and that and whatever, you know, over there I can worship, over here I can worship, you know, whatever. You go to a different church, well, it's not like Elm Grove, I can't worship here. What have we done? We've lost our first love. Maybe it is that you're just going through the motions and you say, boy, Christianity is just dry and I'm just not sure I'm getting anything out of my Bible study. We've lost our first love. Or we begin to bicker over preferences. Well, I like it this way, and I want this, and I want that. And Jesus just says, no, folks, you've lost your first love. You're missing the point. Or we begin to have indifference toward outsiders. We don't love them anymore. Or we begin to gossip about insiders. And our labor and our endurance and our doctrine begin to wane, or they just amount to nothing because what does the Bible say in 1 Corinthians? Without love, what? I am nothing. We might work hard, but if we don't love Jesus, we're just going to think he owes us something for all of our hard work. And we might work hard, but if we don't love each other, then fault finding and backbiting are going to be the norm. And we might work hard, but if we don't love the world and the people that are surrounding us, we're just going to do things for them and we'll never tell them about Jesus because we don't truly love them. You know, we might endure as, as he commends them for on our little outline, and we might endure when things are tough. But if we don't love Jesus, we're just going to be legalists. Well, you got to do this and you got to do that. We might endure, but if we don't love each other, we're still going to be alone in the struggle. And we might endure in this evil world, but if we don't love the world and try to reach it for Jesus Christ, then our endurance misses the point. And we might know and we might believe and we might teach all the right things according to Scripture. But if we don't love Jesus, we're just going to be arrogant. And we might know, believe, and teach all the right things according to Scripture, but if we don't love each other, we're just going to be rude to one another. And as the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 13, we can speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Basically, I can teach and preach and believe all the right things, but if I have not love, then I'm a clanging cymbal, a resounding gong. I'm annoying. I'm just making noise. So what we can't get wrong, obviously, is simple. It's that enthusiastic love for Jesus, for each other, and for the world. That's what he's saying in verse 4. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And what if we find ourselves there? What if this morning 
you find yourself or you pick up on something in your Sunday school class or in your circle of friends or in our church and you say, you know what, I think I am. I think we are just going through the motions here of Christianity, just laboring, just enduring, just protecting doctrine, but our hearts aren't really in it. What do we do? Jesus gives the answer. This is the great thing about Jesus. He doesn't just call them out. He shows them the way back. Look at verse 5. First he says to remember. Remember then how far you have fallen. Remember, he says, go back. Go back in time. Not just to recall the good old days, but go back in time to remember. What was it like when you first met Jesus? What was it like when he first saved your soul? What was it like when you first understood that gospel message? When you were truly alive spiritually? When every Sunday was like the last night at church camp? What was it like? Remember those times when people were being saved every single week, when baptism was not a surprise, when we had to fill up with the water all the time and pay for that water bill. What was it like back then, he's saying? Remember when lives were being put back together on a regular basis. Remember all that, he says. Remember what God did and what he can do. And it's not about recapturing those moments and saying, well, if we just went to this place or if we just decorated this way, then the Spirit of God would move again. No, 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 that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about praying that God would do all those same things in a fresh and a new way. So remember, he says, how far you've fallen. Remember, look, take a picture of how far you've drifted from where it is that God wants you to be. And then secondly, he says in verse 5, repent. Not a real fun concept for us today. Because in repentance, we have to admit that we're wrong, that we've sinned. Repentance requires an admission of sin. And in order to come to Jesus first, by the way, just the first time you come to Jesus, repentance is required. You cannot continue to be the person you are and yet give your life to Jesus Christ. can't happen. You must repent, turn, leave the old life, and receive the new. What's he calling them to repent of? Maybe the same thing he's calling us this morning. Maybe of apathy. Nah, I just don't care. Maybe of just going through the motion, just showing up and just doing our thing. And okay, and can we get out of here, please? Maybe it's of drifting from our true love for Jesus Christ. Or maybe it is a particular sin or several sins that have just crushed your soul to the point where you're not even sure what you believe anymore. Jesus says, remember, and then repent. Turn from those things. And then he says, in verse 5, do the works that you did at first. Return. Return to the things that you did out of love for Jesus, out of love for each other and love for the world. Return to the things that God used to give you life and to kindle that love for Him. For some, that's going to be prayer. For some, it's going to be Bible study. For some, it's going to be Bible study with other people, maybe in a Sunday school class or a small group. For some, it's regular church attendance. For some, it's a retreat here and there. For some, it's a mission trip to say, these are the things that I did once out of love for the Lord, out of love for my fellow Christians, out of love for the world. Churches go wrong when they do what they do because they're just supposed to do those things. But they've drifted from that enthusiastic love for Jesus, for them, for each other, and, and for the world. So this morning, as we make it personal, these letters were two specific churches and specific believers in those churches, of course, were to read them, but everybody back then got the book of Revelation, and guess what we got as well, the book of Revelation. So this morning, how do you apply this? Well, if the shoe fits, wear it. If the shoe fits, wear it. 
If you are a person who's working hard and you're enduring and, and you're teaching and preaching and believing all the right things, but you don't have love in your heart for Jesus, for each other, and for the world, then it is time to remember. And it is time to repent. And it is time to return to the things that we once did out of love. So what do you do if you find yourself dry this morning spiritually? Far from God, even though you're doing all the right things. What do you do if you're just going through the motions? You do what Jesus says. Remember how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And he says otherwise. I'll remove the lampstand. What is he saying to the church at Ephesus? You'll no longer be effective. You might still be getting together but you won't have my blessing. And I know this may seem like, well, this is a message for the whole church, but I do believe it applies to us individually because we're only together as strong as we are individually. And so this morning, my prayer is that we will remember what it is that God has done in the past in our lives, that we'll repent of the sin in our lives, and that we will return to what it is that we once did out of love for Jesus and love for each other and love for the world. Let's pray together. There may be a specific decision or prayer that you need to pray this morning. And I would not want you to leave without having the opportunity to do just that. This morning, you've got some choices to make. The song that we'll sing is, I'd rather have Jesus. What will you choose this morning? The things of this world, or will you choose Jesus Christ? To receive His free offer of salvation, forgiveness of sin. The Bible tells us that if we will repent, if we will confess our sin, that He is faithful and He has the ability to forgive us and to make us right. My prayer is that you'd call out to Him this morning on behalf of yourself, maybe a family member of this church, and say, Lord, help us to remember, to repent, to return. Lord, give us an enthusiastic love for you, for each other, and for the world. Heavenly Father, That's my prayer this morning, that you would in me rekindle that enthusiastic love for Jesus, for my fellow believers, and for the world that you've given me to reach. And Lord, for this church, I do pray that we would would absolutely not get wrong our labor. Thank you, Lord, for so many who work on your behalf here. Lord, that we would not get wrong our endurance, that we would press on no matter what, and that, Lord, we would not get wrong our doctrine. That, Lord, we would not have error in false teaching. But, Lord, in all of that, we know that it amounts to nothing if we don't love you, if we don't love each other, if we don't love the world. And so, God, we pray we'd get that right. Lead us, Lord, as a church and as individuals to love you more each day, to love each other more each day, and to love this world as you have loved it, to give yourself up for it. May that be who you make us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Won't you stand with me as we close with this?